you know, what we need to ultimately do is, is conduct randomized controlled trials, and we actually have many of them. In fact, in 2020, there was a meta-analysis of 41 randomized controlled trials on soy or soy isoflavone intake um, and hormone levels in men. And we saw that the soy isoflavones uh, did not impact testosterone or estrogen levels, regardless of level of intake, including even higher levels of intake than we see typically in aging populations. Kia ora friends, welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. That was Dr. Matthew Nagra. And on today's show, what's up with soy? You've likely all heard someone claim that soy is bad for health, causes breast cancer risk, and lowers testosterone, and makes dudes grow boobs. But where did all this come from, and what does the evidence actually have to say about it? I dive into it with Dr. Nagra to provide all you soy boys and girls with an easy-to-digest resource to understand the science of soy and to share it with all of your skeptical friends. If you're new to the podcast, a quick little intro before we jump in. My name is Jackson Burden. I'm a personal trainer, nutritionist, and gym owner in Auckland, New Zealand. And if you're after a really rational, evidence-based podcast where we discuss topics relating to nutrition, training, lifestyle, specifically for vegans and plant-focused eaters, uh, then this is the podcast for you. And quickly before we get into it, if you're a long-term listener, Hit me up with a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it may be. Quick review, quick five stars. That will help more people find this content and hopefully we can begin debunking the world of soy misinformation together. All right, let's do this episode 42 with Dr. Matthew Nagra on the truth about soy. Alrighty, so Dr. Matthew Nagra, welcome to the podcast. I did want to kick this one off, man, like I usually do with most of our listeners, especially if they're coming from like a plant-based background, is kind of ask where the initial spark for, I guess, veganism or a plant-based diet came into your life. So how did that all kick off um, for you? Yeah, so uh, it started when I was pretty young, um, when I was a teenager, you know, 14 or so. Uh, maybe 15, I was uh, working with a personal trainer. I was training for football. I also played a lot of other sports and martial arts, and I was doing a little bit of everything. Um, and he really promoted sort of a plant-based diet. Now, not like 100% strict necessarily, but mostly plant-based. And, and uh, yeah, I didn't really take him seriously for a long time until at one point he wanted me to record my food, you know, food diary, um, mm-hmm. as they're called. I record what I ate for a couple weeks. And when he said that, I knew my diet was so bad that he was going to see it and, you know, yeah. kick my ass in the gym or something, <laughs> you know, worse than he already does. Um, so, uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to actually try to eat super clean for the next couple of weeks and kind of trick him or something like that. And um, by making some changes like ditching the dairy, reducing my meat intake, um, getting rid of a lot of the classic kind of ultra processed junk foods, um, I just started feeling better. I noticed um, I was losing some weight, uh, which is something I'd struggled with as, as a kid. Um, my skin was clearing up, felt like I was breathing a bit easier. I had a history of asthma. Um, and so, you know, I just thought, okay, maybe there's something to this and maybe I should learn more about it. And over the next couple of years, I just continued to read and, and learn and you know, speak to people who had done it. Um, I wasn't quite so adept at, uh, at reading the primary scientific literature at that point. Um, but at least getting what I could out of uh, others. And, um, 
you know, I, a couple years later when I was at university, I, as I started to, you know, be drinking on the weekends with my friends and eating cafeteria food and, and that kind of thing, I, I noticed that my health was declining again. I was kind of slipping the other way. And so there was a point where I just decided like, you know what, I'm going cold turkey right now overnight. And I did that in my second semester. It's been about 11 and a half years now. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't think I've heard a story from someone who's <laughs> kind of got to the, the point of eating plant-based via trying to impress somebody, especially like, <laughs> you know, just trying to change their diet so that your your, your food diary looks uh, a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is a unique one. Yeah, it sure is. And, um, and so for you, that was, you know, I, I, I guess for a lot of people, there is, um, there is a point where you do have to kind of make the decision of, okay, well, this is it. I'm going to make that decision to tomorrow's the day I start. And that's going to be my lifestyle going forward. Um, and I think it is important to make that decision if that's of value to somebody that they want to go that full route. Um, and so you were obviously transitioning before you got into mm -hmm. the health industry. So I'd love to ask you what that background is like in terms of going through um, your studies uh, as someone who was either transitioning or already transitioned to a, to a plant-based diet. Yeah, um, like, you know, from a, a pretty young age, I, I was kind of interested in healthcare in general. Um, I was interested in, in going somewhere in that sort of space and, you know, seeing how much I did for myself. And eventually, actually, my dad had some cardiovascular issues as well. And, and seeing what he was able to do for himself uh, with dietary change um, really kind of prompted me to look for a way that I could not just focus on the medicine side of things, but also on the nutrition side. And it was actually one of my instructors in undergrad. Um, so my undergraduate studies who um, actually suggested that I shadow a couple of their uh, naturopathic doctors. And I did. And I saw like, wow, I can you know, prescribe medication. I can uh, use nutrition in there. There's there a lot of other tools in the toolkit that maybe I wasn't familiar with. Um, and that's what sort of opened my eyes to it. And then, you know, again, I went to some of the schools to visit and see what their classes were like and, and things. And, and ultimately, I thought it was a pretty good fit for me. So that's sort of how I got into that. And, and throughout the studies with my nutrition background and, and having, I'd say I knew a fair bit prior to actually even getting into that school. Um, I, I'd say for the most part, the nutrition program was pretty good. It was very Mediterranean sort of focused, but there were definitely things where I was butting heads with maybe some of the instructors about and um, obviously I know a lot more about it now than I did even then, but, uh, but for the most part, I actually thought the education was decent there on, on nutrition. Yeah, that's cool. That's really good to hear. Um, it's, yeah, I think, I think there is a lot of, um, validity to that kind of Mediterranean style diet and that is often promoted within a lot of, um, academic circles, um, for the listeners and even for myself, I'd love to understand what the, the real difference there is in terms of what, um, like naturopathy covers or what a naturopath does um, as opposed to say a, a general medical doctor? Yeah. And that answer is going to vary a little bit depending on where you are, uh, what the regulation is like in the given state or province. And I know in Australia, at least I hope I'm not uh, mistaking this, but I don't think it's a regulated profession, right. um, which means kind of like anyone can use the terms and, and, you know, whether it's a three week course or a four year course, you know, um, so I, I don't know if I can speak to that necessarily, but like here in British Columbia, which is one of the best areas to be in North America, um, we are primary care providers. Like I said, we can prescribe medications, we can send for blood tests, we can you know, do a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, but we are just, or we tend to be more lifestyle focused. Um, we also have other tools in our toolkit, like maybe a little more knowledge around 
nutritional supplementation and, uh, um, you know, a bit more knowledge around potentially even herbal treatments, which I'd say there isn't a lot of evidence for a ton of them, but there are certain ones that might be beneficial there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's just sort of a little bit of a different approach, I guess, in, in that what we prioritize or what we have a big broader knowledge base of, but when it comes to like emergency medicine and stuff like that, like, you know, we aren't, we aren't the right person to go to. Um, that's where, you know, I think we can complement each other pretty well. And I think one of the biggest benefits that I have is that I get to spend a lot of time with patients, uh, because it is in the private healthcare sector here, it's not covered under kind of the national uh, insurance model. Um, you know, rather than 10, 15 minute visit, I can spend an hour with a patient and, and oftentimes I'll catch things that were maybe missed. And that's not, that's not reflective of, oh, like the patient's doctor didn't do their due diligence. It's like, no, it's, it's hard to capture all these things in, in a short period of time. And I can really dive deep. And, and sometimes I do catch things that maybe otherwise would have been missed. And, and again, that's sort of where that partnership comes in, um, I think, anyway, between the professions. Yeah, I've probably always thought of naturopaths as, um, and, and like you said, I don't know quite you know, what the, the regulations are here, but, um, as, as a little bit more airy fairy, like someone will go to a, a naturopath, they'll come away with a concoction of a whole bunch of different herbals that oh. they're supposed to be taking. Yeah. Um, and that's going to solve all their problems. But I kind of like what you're describing to me in the sense that you can sit down with an individual and you can look at a lot of the other lifestyle factors that may be contributing to whatever they, they're wanting to improve mm-hmm. in their life. Um, and, and don't get like me wrong. A, yeah. Herbal. Yeah. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There those issues certainly exist over here as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely a problem. I, I see patients who maybe saw someone else prior and they're on a million things. And, you know, I just have to whittle it down to like, look, there isn't good evidence for that. There is for this. And then let's, right. you know, it, it happens here too. And, and it's, it's certainly a problem that I, I would like to see fixed. Um, but it, I wouldn't say it's reflective of what naturopathic medicine necessarily has to be or is right. Mm-hmm. That there are, there are, you know, great practitioners and there are some not so great practitioners just like any other profession. Yes, 100%. I guess that's a good sort of uh, lead-in point to, to a question I had for you in regards to, I guess, reading research. Uh, you're someone who, if you know, if anyone goes onto your Instagram, they'll see that you obviously read a lot of research yourself. You're, you're able to decipher that, that information. A, a lot of people, including myself, I don't love to read full you know, research text because there's a lot of jargon in there. Where I'd rather re- read a, a research review where someone else can look at that uh, that raw data and then break it down a little bit more and go, hey, here's some clear takeaways. Um, and so you're someone who does that quite well. How do you approach you know, reading research and checking your bias along the way? I know that for myself, if I see a, a, a new study, I, I look at a lot more of the strength and hypertrophy research, but if I see a study come out in regarding you know, uh, a plant-based diet versus an omnivorous diet in regards to strength training or, or health outcomes or anything like that, I'll jump on it because I know that you know, because there's that inherent bias there that I want uh, my way of living to succeed and to be a, a, a valid way of approaching things. Um, so how do you check that in yourself when you're reading a lot of the the research specifically on, you know, human health outcomes um, and, you know, even looking at, I guess, observational data where it's a little harder to tease out maybe what's going on. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. For one, I think you have to be aware of a potential bias. So as somebody who you want to say is a part of a diet tribe, you know, everyone uses that yeah, term yeah, yeah, as yeah. someone who is vegan, right? Um, I'm aware that that exists. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm looking at something, I can, you know, hopefully set that aside and look at it for what it is. I find so often people in the online nutrition space who maybe don't 
say, eliminate any food groups altogether, they're very quick to point out that they aren't biased or they claim that they are not biased. That is garbage. Everybody has a bias. If you're if you prefer the sort of moderation approach or a little bit of everything, that's your bias. Right. You know, so anything that suggests that a given food that maybe you like, like red meat or whatever is harmful, you're going to be less likely to favor that. And I see this in the fitness community a lot with animal protein. It's like, mm-hmm. man, we have we have so much outcome based research at this point, looking at even diets where most of the proteins coming from whole foods, yet we don't see a significant difference between animal and plant protein. Like give it up already. <laughs> my, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, but, but they hold on to it and they're always trying to, to find ways to perform like these mental gymnastics. And I see the same thing with red meat and, and like say cardiovascular outcomes. Mm-hmm. So that's one is just understanding that the bias is there and setting it aside. Um, second is I, I try to, um, you know, I, I don't just read the, the abstracts. Like I, I dive into the methodology for any type of study, whether it's favoring a plant-based diet or whether it's not. Now in cases where maybe uh, a study contradicts our priors, like it contradicts what we know about the topic already. Mm-hmm. You want to find the explanation for that. It's not like, Oh, all of a sudden everything we knew before was wrong, even though the headlines will often say that you have to understand, well, why is it, what is it maybe about the characteristics of the population or um, maybe it's the doses. Like we'll, we'll talk about some soy research in a little bit, but when you look at American populations, you're comparing a serving a month to maybe a serving a week. And of course you're not going to see much benefit versus in Asian populations where they're having it almost daily or up to almost daily. Um, So when there are results that contradict the consensus or or prior knowledge on a topic, it's almost always explainable. I've rarely seen cases where it's not explainable by other factors. Um, And so I I look at evidence through that lens as well. And and if it does contradict consensus, then I really want to dive extra deep uh, into that paper and kind of see what's going on. Um, And, you know, in cases where maybe it's a topic outside of my wheelhouse that I'm not as good at, I I consult with other experts in the field. I do that all the time. You know, we we don't have to pretend to know everything. We can't know everything. Um, And that's something, too. I, I find that there are a lot of people who make claims outside of maybe their their specialty or, or whatever their you know area of focus is um and they're just very hesitant to acknowledge when maybe they don't have that knowledge base or maybe they're wrong about something it's like it's okay to consult others or to you know look at other opinions it's, it's not a big deal yeah i agree i think i think if you can follow somebody or, or listen to somebody that is able to say i don't know in a certain situation then that probably someone who's going to be you know of value to you long term because they're not someone who's just going to they're not a complete zealot to a specific ideal where they will you know just come up with some kind of mechanism off the top of their brain as to why something's happening when they really don't know they just want to sound smart right so if they can say i don't know then they're probably someone worth following but i think you bring up a good point in regards to um, potentially the idea of cherry picking studies people probably need to realize that there are studies that can be done in a questionable manner or even just the the way that they have uh kind of synthesized the data from a study may have been done in a a weird way or whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. so there can be some outcomes and studies that are like like you said they're like oh well that's contrary to the the huge amount of data we have before this on this topic so you know maybe we should look deeper into the mechanisms on this and why this is or how they've analyzed this data but, you know, in saying that, someone can take that one study and go, well, now all of that other stuff is refuted because this study says something's different. And that's where that idea of, I guess, cherry picking comes in, where you mm-hmm. pick one study 
it it's not in congruence with the rest of the data on a topic um and now you're promoting that as the truth so i think that's probably a big one to um to bring up for you know people as well as just to go okay cool like you can cite one study but does it does it line up with the rest of of the data on a particular subject yeah 100 percent. and actually i realized i didn't answer your question about observational research either um right so like when it comes to observational research or epidemiology, you know, for, for people listening who maybe aren't familiar, that, that's sort of when you're looking at you know, the, a large population or typically a large population. They don't have to be large, but, but you know, typically for, say, prospective cohorts or something, we're looking at a, a large population followed for a period of time. Um, and you're looking at those who, say, consume more red meat versus those who consume less. And do they have a higher rate of cardiovascular disease over that, say, 10, 15, 20 year period? Um, and how we can you know tease out whether or not that um, variable say red meat intake is the variable that is potentially causing that outcome or contributing to that outcome um, is we, we perform what are called statistical adjustments so you want to also look at other variables that could be related to cardiovascular disease so level of physical activity uh, potentially things like you know body weight or history of diabetes um, smoking status all of these other variables and you, you adjust for them. And in its simplest term, and the simplest way to explain that would be that you level the playing field. So you, you're really trying to compare people who smoke a similar amount, who exercise a similar amount, who have similar levels of income. Uh, and, and so that the variable of interest is that red meat, the, the variable that's different between them. Now, there are complex ways of doing this that might be beyond the scope of this discussion. I mean, you can tell me, but, but really, that's the goal. That's the goal of what they're trying to do. And so these researchers, they're smart. They know what they're doing most of the time. Um, and so they perform those sorts of analyses so we can try to get to that variable. And I wouldn't say that one single you know, study is going to prove cause and effect. But when you have the same results replicated across populations, across age groups, across uh, you know, uh, with a similar, say, dose response, so a similar amount of red meat consumption contributing, you can be pretty confident about that when you pair it, especially with, say, randomized controlled trials looking at red meat intake and cardiovascular risk factors. Like, you're, you're looking at all the data together. You're not just looking at, you know, any single isolated study. Yeah, no, I love that. And it kind of leads in nicely to the to our discussion on soy because I guess there is a there's actually a stack load of data on soy um, that I think people are probably unaware of. And there's you know various meta analyses on 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 soy, which is you know I, I guess a, a combination of a whole bunch of studies brought together and kind of analyzed in a way that we have some clear outcomes or some clear takeaways. Um, and and I haven't really discussed soy on this podcast you know since probably episode two when I had a um, dietitian on. We had a little chat about soy and some of the um, myths around it, and I don't quite often see a lot of the um, the the claims or the myths touted in my circles now because I don't surround myself with those people. But I know that those those myths and claims are still pretty prevalent in um, the general population. Um, I'm wondering if you have seen much of it these days because you know of the circles that you are, um, uh, I guess, in online. But maybe you see it with some of the people that you work with in person around some of the potential um, claims that that you've heard around the detriments of soy and human health. Oh, yeah, I, I see it in my practice all the time. You know, I'll be talking about, you know, say increase in soy consumption for somebody with uh, elevated LDL cholesterol, cardiovascular risk factors, because it's beneficial in that case. Um, and, 
I'll often be met with, oh, but I thought soy was bad. Or, like I'll have patients who's even oncologists, so the breast cancer survivors whose oncologists are recommending they avoid soy. And it's like, we, we actually have data on survival with soy intake and higher soy intake associated with better survival in breast cancer survivors. Right. So it's like, um, you know, it's just a complete misrepresentation of the research, but it's maybe not their fault that they aren't familiar with it if it's not mm. being taught to them, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I see it all the time and it's constantly a topic I have to debunk. And like we were talking about, I did a, you know, two episode, three hour marathon with Simon Hill on the topic too. It's just like, um, it's, it's something that I'm always trying to hammer. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, that the, the, the narratives will slowly change over time. I'm sure, um, you know, as more of these, you know, these episodes and, and different people are promoting it. Uh, but I guess a question I'd love to hear your thoughts on is where do you think some of these narratives originated from? You know, if, if it's such a, if it's across the board in general population, especially in the Western world that, you know, soy is a problem for whatever reason, whatever claim they have, whether it's to do with hormone health or whether it's to do with cancer, um, or whether it's to do with you know the way it's processed, or even the way that it's effects on uh, climate change, what do you think? Especially the some of the claims around human health and its negative effects have actually you know originated from. Um, so why or when it started, I'm not sure. But where the information often comes from, um, I, I'd say is is typically in a couple places. So there's research on rodents who are fed not even soy most of the time but isolated soy isoflavones which are those phytoestrogen estrogen-like compounds that are found in soy um and we'll, we'll get into those in, in a minute here but yeah. basically they're isolated high amounts of those phytoestrogens and they're fed them sometimes even injected with them and they run into problems couple issues there we aren't rodents and the translation of animal research into human outcomes is very poor you know if, if something works or or is harmful in um in an animal model chances are it's not going to be the same in humans based on what we know. Um, that translation rate is very poor, so it doesn't tell us a lot. Um, second, there are a couple isolated case studies. So these are sort of like anecdotes that have been published where, um, you know, you follow an individual and you, you uh, give kind of a detailed history for them. And you'll see a couple where some men were having almost all soy diets, essentially, and they may have run into issues. So one of them, I believe, was erectile dysfunction. Another one um, uh, noted some breast growth, so gynecomastia. Um, we can't, and actually they say in there, we can't determine cause and effect. We can't say for certain that the soy caused those issues, but hey, potentially they're having a ton of soy and they're having these issues. Yeah. Might be a link. You know, yeah. what we need to ultimately do is, is conduct randomized controlled trials. And we actually have many of them. In fact, in 2020, there was a meta-analysis of 41 randomized controlled trials on soy or soy isoflavone intake um, and hormone levels in men. And we saw that the soy isoflavones uh, did not impact testosterone or estrogen levels, regardless of level of intake, including even higher levels of intake than we see typically in Asian populations. And then for women, um, there is a meta-analysis. I, I believe the most recent one was going back to about 2009 now, uh, 47 trials. Um, and they found that, again, pretty high doses of soy intake um, did not actually uh, significantly impact uh, estrogen or testosterone values overall. Um, so, again, when we're actually testing these compounds in humans, it doesn't seem like it's a concern from a hormone perspective. 
Mm. Um, and that might be because these phytoestrogens, they work differently than estrogen. They aren't the same as our own human estrogens or even the estrogens that you'll find in animal products, which are, are mammalian estrogen. Um, they, they are similar in shape to our own estrogens, so they can bind to some of the same receptors, but they are much, much, much weaker, like up to one one thousandth the strength of our own estrogens. And they uh, preferentially bind certain types of receptors in our body that have specific actions that can actually help modulate the estrogen response. So if you're having a very pro-estrogenic response, it can actually dampen that. Where if you're ha- if you're having you know a, a, say a low estrogenic response, you're not getting enough of that estrogenic response. It can actually promote it, like in bone tissue, for example, where we want an estrogenic response um, to help with bone mineral density. So um, so it actually works both ways and tends to be beneficial in that case. Yeah. So I'd love to dive yeah a little deeper into that, especially the hormone side of things. I think that's probably the most common one that comes up mm-hmm. is is and even I've I've had this from people that you know I have in my life is when I you know started transitioning to eating more soy on a vegan diet. There was these claims of like watch out, but you know you, you don't want to have these feminizing effects. So what when we look at that uh, meta analysis where you say hey look regardless of dose, there was no real effects on. Uh, especially on the male uh, uh, male hormones. Yet we do have some of those case studies where there was that one where, yeah, that guy was eating however many, like 12 servings a day of soy or whatever it was. It was a huge that amount. Was the lower, that was the lower amount of the two, but yeah. Okay, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so a large amount of soy and there were some effects there. So how do we, how do we I guess – look between those two and go, what is the discrepancy here? Like what was the dosage in some of those meta-analysis, uh, meta-analysis um, studies where you said, hey, even if it was a high dose, there wasn't any effects. What Do you know, have any idea of what the dosage was there and like yeah. where maybe the cutoff is? Yeah. So, so the dosages that we saw, well, for starters, actually talking about the case studies, we don't know that there was a cause and effect relationship there. We need to be very clear. Okay. Um, you know, just like say the you know, claimed to be the world's oldest man a couple of years ago, died at 118. Freddie Blum was his name and he smoked every day. Doesn't mean the smoking's fine, right? Yeah. Even if he smoked in moderation, doesn't mean that that's fine. Um, so drawing that sort of cause and effect relationship is, is very difficult in those cases. And in fact, can't really be done. Yeah. Um, but let's even assuming that that is correct. Um, you know, the meta-analysis, the one on men um, had doses up to about 40 grams of soy protein and over 100 milligrams of isoflavones, the, the phytoestrogens. And to give you kind of an idea of what that might look like, so a cup of soy milk or 100 grams of tofu is about that 20 to 25 milligram of isoflavone mark. Okay. Um, tempeh uh, around, you know, uh, 35 milligrams, soy protein isolate a little under 20. Um, so you're looking at, you know, three, four, five six, maybe even, uh, servings every day, um, like daily. And that, that's a fair bit in and of itself. Uh, not that I, I personally wouldn't even be concerned going higher than that, to be honest. Um, but that is, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, I'd say a fair amount for the average person to be consuming anyway. And that, so that was a dosage that was seen as to be fine in this, in these. these Yeah. So what they did, they, they did what's called a subgroup analysis. So they looked at different doses of, say isoflavone intake. So they separated into studies where the dose was over hundred milligrams and then studies where it's you know, under hundred milligrams. And there might've been even a lower one. Um, I, I can't recall. Um, and so even in the highest one, which is that over hundred milligram dose, uh, which would be at least, you know, four or five cups of soy milk a day or four or five 
100 gram servings of tofu a day. Um, even if soy intake is that high or isoflavone intake is that high, um, there wasn't a significant impact. And if anything, funny enough, um, there was a non-statistically significant increase in testosterone. <laughs> so it's like the opposite of what people would claim anyway. Yeah. Um, so again, just, I don't see any good reason to be concerned about it. Yeah. Cool. Do you see any reason why I guess a Western population would have a, a, a cause I don't know if these studies, what populations they were done on, but you know, we know that Asian populations have been consuming soy for, you know, thousands of years now. And mm-hmm. is there anything to, to say, or if you ever thought about the idea that maybe, maybe Asian populations can tolerate a higher dose of isoflavones than say a Western population who generally don't consume a lot of soy um, or like you're saying, they consume it like once a month or whatever. Yeah. So if, if I recall correctly, they actually subgrouped by geographic location as well. And it didn't seem to make a difference. Um, but even then, if we were to look at say um, cohort studies, you know, observational research on, on different populations, at worst, we see a neutral impact of soy consumption in Western populations, like at worst. And that's, right. again, because they eat such a small amount, right? You, you, to have the benefits of soy intake, you need to eat higher amounts. Um, now, there is speculation as to why, say, in Asian populations, they might benefit even more beyond just eating more of it. And that's because they might have certain microbes in their gut that break down some of the soy and soy isoflavones into, um, into certain compounds called equal, uh, which might have certain benefits. Um, but... If that has a, an impact, I suspect it's a relatively modest impact um, compared to just what soy in general would do for even Western populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think I don't think there's reason to believe that what in Western populations they wouldn't also benefit from having more. And I see zero reason to think that in Western populations there'd actually be harm to consuming it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's definitely something that I think, um, you know, starting to gain some traction in Western populations is more soy fo- foods, and I think that's mm-hmm. going to only only increase as more people sort of shift towards more plant based eating. So that's really good to see, and and good to hear that it's going to be beneficial for us. I guess another claim that is is often thrown around is is the effects on cancer risk and specifically mm-hmm. breast cancer risk. Um, have you seen any data on this and, and do you feel there is any risk associated with soy consumption and any forms of cancer? Yeah. So we have plenty of research on, um, on soy consumption and breast cancer risk. Um, so it's a, just to, to run through some yeah. of the notes that have your 2013 meta-analysis um, of, uh, of observational research found that isoflavone range um, or Higher soy consumption, particularly in Asian populations, was associated with better outcomes um, for breast cancer risk. But we didn't see as much of a a benefit or any real benefit in the uh, Western populations. And that's because when you look at the range of intakes, even the highest consumers in the Western populations were eating less than the lowest consumers in Asian populations. So the contrast in intake was tiny. And you're just you're not going to see, you know, it's, it's like. Again, if we're trying to look at you know risk associated with smoking, and you compare someone smoking um, five cigarettes a day to six cigarettes a day, you're just not going to see a difference, yes. right? Um, and so it's, it's the same kind of thing. Um, now, in 2019, uh, there was another another uh, great meta analysis looking at soy intake, and they found that each 10 milligram um, of isoflavone intake was associated with a three percent lower breast cancer risk, um, and if we look specifically at tofu, about a half, it would be about um, a half a serving of tofu a day. 
uh, was associated with a, a modest decrease. Uh, and then obviously higher intakes would lead to a, a greater decrease in risk. Um, in fact, each 10 grams of uh, tofu consumed is associated with a 10% lower risk um, in, in what are called case control studies. Um, and then even for breast cancer survival, as I kind of mentioned earlier, those who have breast cancer or previously battled breast cancer tend to actually have higher survival rates if they consume more soy compared to those who consume less. So across the board, we're seeing benefit or in Western populations, at worst, we're seeing neutral uh, relatively neutral impact, but that's largely probably because they just aren't consuming very much. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it, it's pretty clear there. And then in, in men, we see data on, on prostate cancer also uh, suggesting that higher soy consumption may reduce prostate cancer risk. And according to an umbrella review, uh, which is sort of a, a review of meta-analyses, in this case, 114 different meta-analyses, wow. soy consumption was associated with a lower risk of ovarian cancer, prostate, colorectal, endometrial, lung, stomach, um, I think maybe a couple other cancers. And uh, the only negative that they found was that miso soup intake specifically was associated with a higher risk of stomach cancer, but that's likely due to the fact that it's high in sodium mm -hmm. and high sodium intake is associated with higher um, stomach cancer risk. So it wasn't necessarily the soy per se, it was probably all the salt that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. That probably comes back to like a good point of like, uh, when you look at foods, it's not always like specifically the food, but also how it is. <laughs> Uh, administered how is it processed how is it how are you consuming that food and, and I'd love to touch on some of that in a moment in regards to soy and processing but probably one of the other big points in regards to soy um, that does come up is is in relation to cardiovascular disease or at least it's something maybe we should touch on um, I think you've mentioned in the past in regards to some of the benefits of of soy in regards to cardiovascular disease risk um, what do you have to say on that and and what what are some of the maybe the mechanisms around why soy would actually be beneficial for reducing cardiovascular disease risk. Yeah. So um, again, going to a meta-analysis of randomized trials that we have, um, soy protein itself. So if you're taking soy protein in the form of a supplement or soy milk, so these are going to be obviously without all the fiber and everything. Um, right. Even then, uh, soy protein can reduce LDL cholesterol values, which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, right. And this meta-analysis in particular found that there was about a 3.2% reduction in LDL cholesterol levels, which is uh, just under five milligrams per deciliter. I don't know what units you use in, in Australia, whether it's millimoles per liter or milligrams per deciliter. Um, yeah, I think, it's, kind of I think it's milligrams, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so Canada actually uses the other ones. But anyways, I'll, I'll give you the, the milligrams per deciliter there. Um, and the, the median dose, so kind of middle of the road, was about 25 grams. Uh, so that's, if you were to take a soy protein isolate, that's like a scoop, typically, is around there um, for about six weeks. And, uh, and that was, you know, again, for pretty well isolated soy protein, it wasn't even for, you know, soy foods that with more fiber that can also have the, the you know, benefits uh, for, say, cardiovascular risk or, or LDL values because fiber can bind some of the cholesterol in our gut and, and help uh, excrete it. Mm -hmm. um, and now, so what are the mechanisms here? Although this trial doesn't totally speak to that, one of the benefits would be replacing saturated fat and cholesterol with soy protein sources. So saturated fat raises LDL, you replace meat or something like that with tofu, you're getting rid of the saturated fat, you're getting, or drastically reducing the saturated fat, you're getting rid of the cholesterol. Um, that in and of itself is going to be beneficial. Also, when we break down and digest soy protein, some of the short chains of amino acids uh, that are produced there during digestion might actually increase LDL um, receptor activity, which is you know, 
on our cells, we have, or especially liver cells, we have these receptors that pull LDL out of the bloodstream. And so you can actually potentially upregulate those receptors. So if you have more of them, you're pulling more LDL out of the bloodstream, therefore dropping your LDL values, which you don't want in the blood, right? You want it as low as possible. Um, and then there are, as far as cardiovascular risk, some you know evidence around uh, blood pressure, although that's not necessarily related to LDL cholesterol, potentially reducing that uh, as well. And, and there's a lot of speculation to be had about other mechanisms. Like we, I don't think we've totally figured it out, but what we do see is that it reduces LDL values. And again, higher soy consumption is associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular events um, in the observational research that we have. And uh, a 2017 meta-analysis found that um, high consumption is associated with a 16% lower risk of cardiovascular disease uh, compared to lower consumption. Um, and, uh, and there was a fairly recent prospective cohort um, from China with nearly 100,000 uh, Chinese adults ages 40 and up, and they had a good range of intakes. Um, and again, uh, high consumption was associated with a 14% lower risk of cardiovascular disease and actually a 17% lower risk of all-cause mortality, which is total risk of dying during this study period, um, you know, compared to those consuming the least. So, I mean, the data is, is pretty consistent there as well. Yeah, cool. I mean, it, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like, you know, soy pretty much is a bit of a slam dunk across the board for most populations to be consuming. And even I was listening to a podcast recently around uh, even soy consumption for ladies transitioning through the menopause phase and it's and it's uh, benefits on helping reduce hot flashes and things like that. So um, even the, the effects of menopause can be somewhat uh, dampened by an increased consumption of soy as well. So I think there's some real big benefits to be had from upregulating soy in somebody's diet um, for various uh, health outcomes here. Are there any sort of special circumstances that you've come across that somebody may need to avoid soy? I mean, I know there are certain people that I've worked with in the past that have, um, for whatever reason, been requested not to consume soy by their by their doctor, um, whether it's like you know a true intolerance or um, some other complication. There is there anything that you've seen that you know some people may actually have to avoid soy, or or maybe they have to reduce the the total uh, you know uh, total dose slightly. Well, in cases of allergy, of course, yeah, you shouldn't be eating something that you're allergic to. Um, but in cases of intolerances, that could be another one. Now, intolerances are really tough to diagnose. Like, it's really hard to diagnose and pinpoint exactly what the problem is. But if you are, you know, end up being quite confident that it is soy, and you've tried eliminating it and reintroducing it, and it you know bugs you or upsets your stomach in some way, uh, then yeah, of course, that would be another reason too. Otherwise, honestly, I don't really see any major reason for anyone to avoid soy. Um, I just haven't really seen any convincing data of it. It's um, it's one of the most nutritious, if not the most nutritious legume, and um, and it's consistently associated with good health outcomes. So I just don't see a reason. Yeah, awesome. And I guess if someone you know if someone did you know for for allergy's sake have to uh, just continue consuming soy, it's like well you know there's many other legumes that you could consume yeah. instead, um, and still get some really great benefits from those products um, as well. So uh, the the one of the other th- other things I wanted to touch on was you know. There are a lot of people that will say, okay, great. Well, soy seems to be great for human health um, and all these outcomes I've just mentioned. But some of these soy products are super processed and I don't want to consume processed foods. They're going to be you know, detrimental to my health. I don't want to consume tofu that's been processed. I don't want to consume soy milk you know, that's been processed. Um, and then especially, um, you know, and I'll term those very minimally processed foods, but then if we look at 
you know, foods such as a lot of the mock meats that we see now in supermarkets that do have soy in them, you know, there's another aspect that someone would go, okay, no, well, I'm not going to consume mock meats because they are a processed variety of food and that is uh, harmful for human health. So what would you say to that? And, um, you know, are there, are there any sort of processed foods or soy processed foods that we should be mindful of? Um, so just starting with the last question, actually, things to be mindful of isn't necessarily the soy itself, but if you're getting into like really high sodium contents or you're having some you know, mock meats that are loaded with coconut oil or something, the high saturated fat content, something to look out for. So when it comes to those sort of products, I do usually look at sodium content and I look at saturated fat content first and foremost. Um, but outside of that, just because something's processed doesn't make it unhealthy. And in fact, processing can be a benefit in a lot of cases. If we think about, say, plant-based milks, whether it be soy milk or another plant-based milk, I and mean, we have all the fortification, they're fantastic source of calcium, can be a source of B12, vitamin D. Um, without the processing of that, we wouldn't have it. You know, we, Calcium would be a bigger problem for people eating plant-based diets, uh, for sure. If we look at like vinegar, vinegar is a healthy thing to consume. You know, it might help with vasodilation, does all sorts of things, um, yet it's processed. Uh, we look at, you know, olive oil, uh, often touted as a health food, maybe some people in the plant-based community, not so much, <laughs> but, but super uh, well-researched and associated with great health outcomes across the board, and it's yeah. processed. Um, just because something's processed doesn't make it unhealthy, and just because something's unprocessed doesn't make it healthy. Again, red meat, unprocessed, associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease, colorectal cancer, and even all-cause mortality. Yeah. I mean, what would you take in that case? Remove remove labels altogether. And, and just as a thought experiment, you have food A, zero processing as nature intended, but you live a shorter life. Food B, processed, better nutrition, lower risk of disease, you live a longer life. What do you choose? I mean, it's, it's a, if processing was the problem, you would pick food A, which leads to a shorter life, right? So clearly it's not the problem when you put it that way. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's just something to think about. I, I don't think the fact that something's processed is the issue. And when we look at like tofu, I think it's one of the greatest benefits, especially for athletes. When you've removed some of the fiber, you process it down, the protein is more bioavailable. You've, um, you've got a higher caloric density, um, which is, is great for, you know, if you're trying to hit a certain calorie target. Um, and if you're trying to rely on say edamame for that, it might be a lot more challenging to get to that number or to get to that amount. So yeah, I, I don't see, that is a really good argument. And I, I think it leads to fear around things that could actually be really beneficial. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. That last point you brought up is in regards to, you know, if, if there is an athlete who is trying to, for example, increase protein intake, but they're afraid of uh, a processed food, yeah, they're going to they find it very hard to consume enough total, you know, whole foods, even minimally processed foods such as such as you know, even tofu and, and tempeh and things like that, if they're a larger individual, they're probably going to want to use a protein powder at some point to, to ramp yeah. it up a little bit. So that is an ultra-processed food by all classifications. Uh, but that doesn't, if we, yeah, again, it's about stripping away these labels. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be harmful to human health and potentially it's even going to be beneficial if there's, you know, been things, uh, if that product's been fortified with other nutrients such as, you know, as you mentioned, calcium, um, B12, um, you know, sometimes I see um, uh, protein powders fortified with things like iron. So, you know, mm -hmm. these these things can be really beneficial um, for us as well. Um, now, all this being said, what would be some typical recommendations you would give to 
your the people that you work with, your own clients, um, or even people that just follow you in regards to, you know, what are some good soy foods that people should be including, and what kind of dosages should they be looking at on a daily basis that would be, you know, appropriate for somebody. Um. Well, for types of foods, like I love tofu. I love smoked tofu. I make sandwiches with it all the time. Okay. Um, don't even have to do, do anything. Tofu? Or you just oh, so, buy smoke. So it's, yeah, it's bought. I don't know if you don't oh, wow. have that where you no, are, but that. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like smoked and it's hard. It's like really super firm and it's already flavored. Oh, tastes so good. Um, so I'm sorry you don't have that, but I love using that on sandwiches. Or if I'm using plain tofu, I'll just like pan fry it with some like hot sauce and spices and put that on a sandwich or something. So I, I love tofu. I use it in a whole variety of ways. Um, tempeh is good. I feel like I don't eat it that much, but I do enjoy it when I do. And, and it's pretty widely available. Edamame is obviously available everywhere, although it's typically loaded with a whole lot of salt um, when, right. when you do purchase it anywhere. Um, soy milk is my milk of choice. It is the most nutritious one. And it's actually, I don't know over there, but over here is the only um, plant milk that is recommended for kids. Um, because of its nutrient profile. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then one that I got, I know I got Simon to order like a massive box of was soy curls. Um, oh, okay. I don't know if you've ever, ever had those or I heard of them. Those, no. Oh, I love them. Um, they're, they're very sort of chicken esque in texture and all it, it's just soy. It's just ground dried soy is all it is, but they're in these chunks and you soak it in water and it gets a very like meaty texture. And then you just cook it up with whatever sauce or spices or whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, and it's great on like stir fries or whatever. Um, so that's one. And, you know, TVP, textured vegetable protein, a similar idea and, and very, very high protein. In fact, per calorie, it, it rivals even extra lean meats. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an excellent protein source um, to choose from. And those would be some of the main ones. But I know there are a lot of other options as well. Um, as far as dosages, I know you mentioned, mm. I'm not concerned, to be honest. I'm yeah. just really not. Um, I don't I don't see any reason to be concerned about it. I, I would say... Once soy intake gets to a point that it's crowding out other things and you're not getting your fruits or vegetables or other legumes or, um, you know, your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, if you're, if you're totally crowding out some of those food groups, then you're definitely having too much, right? You want to have a little bit of all of that. Um, but I'm not worried or I wouldn't be worried, um, if, you know, you're having one serving a day, or if you're having three servings a day or, or whatever, it's just typically not a concern. Um, obviously if, there are any people listening with, uh, you know, any health concerns or, or conditions that they're working on. Speak with your healthcare provider for sure. De- definitely um, let them know if you're making any big changes to your diet. Um, but otherwise, I, I just don't see research suggesting that it's it's a concern. Um, outside of actually, maybe we should touch on this. If you have hypothyroidism mm-hmm. and you're taking um, medication for that, um, like Synthroid would be a, a common one. Definitely don't want to take those at the same time as you're eating soy. In fact, should be on an uh, empty stomach most of the time um, and uh, or all the time. Um, and you want to make sure that your iodine intake is adequate. Uh, the only time that soy consumption seems to be a problem with regard to thyroid health is if iodine intake is not adequate. So that's definitely another thing to consider. Yeah, that's actually um, an interesting point because I guess in this episode, we've, we've touched a little bit on salt intake a couple of times here in regards okay maybe we want to you know don't have too many foods that are really really laden with with a whole bunch of extra salt and generally that's going to mean hey cool we're going to steer away from really ultra processed foods um 
but there's a certain amount of salt, especially if you're uh, you know, like in places like New Zealand, it's probably the same in, in Canada and stuff like that, where salt, uh, a lot of the table salt is fortified with iodine. Um, there is a certain amount that's probably going to be essential for human health. I know that there is this kind of inverse use of, inverse you association with salt in the terms that like too little is, is not great for health. Too much is probably also not great for health. Um, what would you be your recommendations around, around salt for people? Um, just as a, as a little dovetail here. Yeah. Um, I, I say the, the U or the J shape relationship might be due to some confounding and it's really hard to tease out that lower end. Um, so I, I don't know that people need to necessarily focus on including salt. I, I wouldn't say the evidence is super clear there, at least in my view. Okay. Um, but when it comes to, uh, iodine intake, yeah, having a bit of salt is, unless you have, you know, high blood pressure, you're trying to lower that. Isn't it? I, I don't see a, a big problem with that. There aren't a lot of contraindications, maybe up with certain kidney issues, uh, there, but, uh, but you know, for, for most healthy individuals, I don't see a big concern. Um, and then the other option are low sodium, um, salt alternatives. Like there are potassium based salts that you can use that you can also get iodized. And that's actually what I use. And, and so I'll use that in, in my prep and it'll taste like salt, but it's much lower in sodium and actually much higher in potassium and, and just ultimately a bit better for you. Um, so, so that's another option too. But uh, definitely um, looking at iodine sources like that or potentially a supplement or, or you know, even seaweeds aren't the best source because the iodine content can be very uh, variable depending on the source and everything. So it's, it's a little less clear there um and i'd be a little hesitant to rely on that but uh but otherwise uh, a salt or salt alternative is pretty good okay cool yeah great well i think we've covered a, a whole bunch here um and really given a, a nice clear picture for people and hopefully they'll want to share this one with some friends and family members maybe that are a, a little confused around soy consumption and just just kind of you know put them at put them at ease that you know it's going to be a fine thing to include in their diet in various amounts um, and specifically for people, for athletes and people who wanted to, you know, jack up protein a little bit, adding in some soy in various forms is going to be really beneficial for your, your protein intake as well. Um, as we sort of finish up here, uh, I love to ask, you know, cause you mentioned before around, you know, um, you doing some personal training and you were, you were doing football, I believe. What does fitness look like for you these days? Um, yeah. So I, uh, I, play soccer that's been my main sport my whole life when i said football earlier i meant american football um but yeah yeah. but the soccer is something i've played my whole life um that's my main sport you know once i got into university and then into a career i couldn't do everything anymore so so that's the one that stuck i also lift weights probably about four times a week and i do some sort of cardiovascular activity you know cycling running uh on the other days Um, so i'm doing something every day uh pretty much here and um, you know, I, I've done previously a lot of martial arts like jujitsu, taekwondo, boxing, and so on. And, and yeah. I do like to still do that with some friends every now and then. Uh, we have a little group that, that does sometimes, but, um, uh, it's kind of fallen to the wayside a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super cool. It's always great to hear, um, you know, someone who is in, in the health industry, but also, you know, out there doing, doing a bit of training as well and really benefiting from that side of things. Um, you know, getting the benefits from the diet and from the, from the exercise too. Um, one of the, one of the things I love to finish off and I've sort of started doing this recently is finish off with a question for you in regards to a recommendation. So for the listeners, um, what is one thing you're digging right now and, and that you think maybe other people would enjoy as well? This could be like anything from a book or a, a band you're listening to or a new favorite food, anything you like, what are you, what are you into right now? 
Oh man, so it's not just even nutrition, hey? No, so we'll not at all. Not at all. Whatever, give us, whatever give us I want. Anything. Yeah, man. Because I think, I think, uh, you know, I love hearing what other people are, are are digging and what they're into, and maybe then I can go check it out as well and and find something that I really love. All right. So, so I uh, I'm also a musician. I played guitar uh, for for a long time, and uh, I had a my amp was broken for like months, and so it just got fixed. So I've been playing a ton of guitar. Awesome. Um, lately, uh, actually just playing up until about a minute before this call. Um, so I play a lot of like <laughs> ACDC, so Australian yeah. band, ACDC, okay. and then uh, Def Leppard, uh, they're a couple of my cool. favorites. Um, so they mess around with that a lot. Fantastic. So guitars is, is back on the yeah. agenda for you. I love it. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, mate. Um, and to finish up here, mate, what are you working on this year? Is there anything you want to promote or do you want to just link your uh, your handles for the people so they can check you out? Um, yeah, working on some stuff, maybe not super ready to announce just yet, but cool. stay tuned, I guess. Um, yeah, totally. But uh, but definitely, um, you follow me on social media. I do most of my content on Instagram, so just at uh, dr.matthewnegra. Um, obviously, you can link that to them. Also on Twitter, um, on Facebook, on uh, TikTok now. That's wow. a more recent thing. Um, but honestly, it ends up being just my Instagram content going across. Yeah, yeah. How, um, how do you find the, the difference in, in how it's received over the year? Is it different? Oh, the comments are ridiculous. Like on, oh, on really? TikTok, people will just, they'll make such strong claims about everything. And I just <laughs> respond with, did you read the study? Because it's clear they didn't. Like yeah. they'll ask stuff yeah. or criticize things that are clearly answered in the study. And I'll just, yep. I'll keep responding with that because it gets really annoying. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so... I mean, that happens on Instagram too, but I feel like it's yeah. the percentage of comments that are like that is just way higher on TikTok. It's crazy. Yeah. I think there's a big like carnivore, there has to be a big carnivore community on TikTok or something. Right. Right. Like that's what yeah. it feels like to me. Yeah. Um, oh, and then uh, the other thing is I'd say my website, drmatthewniagara.com. Um, I post, you know, sometimes larger articles. I also link all my podcast appearances there. So I'll link this one there yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people can check out past podcasts I've been on, things like that too. Fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll, I'll link all that for everybody and they can uh, check you out. And yeah, I love I love the content that you're putting out. It's very uh, clear to the point and, you know, with some actionable sort of take-homes for people, which I really appreciate. So um, we need more of that good stuff out there. So good on you. Thanks Thank for coming you. on the episode, mate. Thanks for chatting through this with me. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you again soon. Thanks. Right, guys, there you have it. Soy debunked. Overwhelmingly, soy seems to be beneficial for a whole bunch of human health outcomes and seems to be beneficial no matter what form you take it in. If you're someone who generally avoids processed foods, you can take some of the uh, topics we discussed around processed foods from this episode and try to implement that into your dietary practices as well. Obviously, a diet that is predominantly processed foods is not going to be beneficial for human health, but one that includes some processing and especially some minimally processed foods that are generally fortified with beneficial nutrients such as iron, such as fiber, such as calcium is going to be a real benefit to your health. So with that being said, soy foods are definitely on the menu. Take a look at including tofu, tempeh, textured vegetable protein, 
edamame beans, even some protein powders that include soy isolate should be fine, uh, protein bars, and even some of your mock meat varieties that you'll find at supermarkets should be fine as well. Just having a look, as we mentioned in this podcast, at the total saturated fat content and the sodium content of those foods. And as a final point here, just remembering that soy foods are a complete protein, meaning they contain all nine essential amino acids, and they're a great option for building lean muscle tissue and promoting recovery from training. All right, that is it. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with a friend. Share it with someone who needs to know some info about soy. They need to understand the intricacies and uh, maybe cross off some of those myths that have been perpetuated for far too long. Okay, that's it. I'm Jason Burden. This is the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. And we'll see you in the next one. Plant Friends. Thank you.